John chapter 12. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you'd help us now as we consider your word. We want to worship you. We pray that we would not neglect you in the process of looking at your word, but instead that we would be impressed by you and by your son, and that it would, uh, by your grace, you would, you would transform us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we attach significance to dates and events. I can think for myself of a day in June of 1991, the first time I ever walked into this church. And I walked down those very same back stairs and into the fellowship hall uh, downstairs and saw this incredibly beautiful young girl walk across the room. My life has never been the same. I leaned over to my friend. You've heard this. I know. Sorry. I'm going to tell you again anyway. Leaned over to my friend Tom and I said, that's the girl I'm going to marry. And lo and behold, there she sits. August 2nd of 1997 is also a date that we attach great significance to. That was the day that my wife and I were married uh, here in this church. And then January 17th, 2002. And then June 19th, 2003. And then June 6th, 2005. And then April 30th, 2013. And then January 26th, 2015. These are dates that we attach significance to. As the Lord blessed us five times with the birth of our children. If you look at individual dates and individual events, they have a certain amount of meaning. And, and, and when you combine all of these events and all of the significance, you, you craft a life. A life that, that you praise God for. And you say, look at what the Lord has done. He's, he's worked all of these dates as important dates in, into the tapestry of our lives. As we look at God's Word and as we read the pages of Scripture and as we, as we read through the events of the Lord Jesus Christ as He walked on the face of the earth and as He marched toward His crucifixion, we have to see the significance of all of these events and what God is unveiling through it all. If we look at just individual events as information or data that we're accumulating and don't see the big picture that God is crafting, we are missing the point. All of history, all of history, both physical history of the world and eternal history, was building up and pointing to the events to which we speak Sunday after Sunday, and then particularly uh, pay special note of on a day like today and this coming Friday and next Sunday as we celebrate the Lord Jesus' march into operations in crucifixion, burial, and resurrection in the city of Jerusalem in Israel. All of history was pointing to this. As we read the pages of Scripture, we look with awe at the workings of our redeeming God. As we come to the Gospels, we start to gain a greater clarity of what kind of God 
created us. We stand amazed as we see Jesus heal diseases and cast out demons and rule over nature and forgive sin. We are struck as we see Jesus touch a man afflicted with leprosy. As Jesus wisely, wisely answers those who attempt to undermine Him, we smile and we rejoice. The Gospels unfold for us the nature, role, and work of the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The Gospels have been characterized this way. Uh, Matthew has been characterized as a formal portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ as King. Mark has been characterized as snapshots of Jesus as our uh, great suffering servant. Luke has been depicted as a motion picture of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. And the Gospel of John has been depicted as an x-ray image showing us who Jesus really is, showing Him to be, in fact, the Son of God. As you read your Bible, do you look on in wonder at Jesus? As you read your Bible, do you, do you understand the, the, the inner workings of God winning a people for Himself, redeeming a people for Himself? We see it from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. God will not stop until He wins His people. It is His will, desire, determination, and it is what He does. This is what God does. Do you wonder as you read the Scriptures? This morning, we will scan over the last week of Jesus' human earthly ministry. Uh, We'll continue to look at His Passion Week this Friday night at 7 o'clock in our Good Friday service, and then we will celebrate together the outcome of the Passion Week next Sunday morning as we gather to worship the risen Savior. This morning, as we're together, our goal is to just navigate through some of the events of this last week. There's no way we could properly uh, investigate all of it, but to survey it with a purpose, to survey it, to understand what it was all leading to. Not for neat little factoids that you can share in your Bible study group. Not for neat little factoids that you can quiz your children with. But we want to see the workings and the person and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the One who is the Messiah and who is the Savior of the world. We begin our look on the Saturday before He enters into Jerusalem. The Saturday before He enters into Jerusalem, He's on the outside of the city, He's on the other side of a mountain, and He's visiting with some friends that He knows very well. We see this in John chapter 12. Take a look please with me, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, 
whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. <laughs> so it cracked me up. I looked up the, the Greek term for nard. You ready for this? This is super, super cool. It was nardos. It just means, so it's, it's an extract from a plant that had a really strong, strong uh, perfume-like uh, odor. So she breaks open this pure nard. It is in previous versions, it's been called spike nard uh, because it's from the spike of the nard. You've got to love this stuff. Nardos. And anointed, she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What is she doing here? What is the point? Is it to talk about Nardos and that it's the spike of the nard? Is it to even talk about the, what kind of fragrance was this? What did it smell like? What's the point? Mary anoints the feet of Jesus Christ as an act of worship. And there's even more to it than that. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, or he was who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Pause right there. You can see the heart of the person that doesn't know who Jesus is. Yeah? 300 denarii. A denarius is a day's wage. Is that the rule of thumb? So almost a year's uh, wages. Let me ask you a question. If right now, Jesus were to stand right here in front of you, and you could (laughs) give him a year's wage, like you had the ability to do this, and you could just lay it at his feet, would you have any problem doing that? I don't think, if you know him, I don't think if you have at your disposal a year's worth and you can give it to Jesus because he's standing right here, I think you know him, you know what he's done, you know who he is, and you're not thinking, ooh, what will I do if I give that away? You're just thinking, Jesus is here. And this is what Mary's got on her mind. This is worth a year. This is worth everything I have. And Judas is like, all the poor Yeah, you think Judas was really thinking about the poor? Judas is thinking about himself, like we all do. Verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. What, a, what an interesting scene. And I think it sets the tone for the Passion Week. Before Jesus even enters in, we start to see the, those who are followers of Him, those who love Him and worship Him and, and want Him, and those who have some other agenda. And we're going to see that through the whole week, won't we? I think we see that through all of history of mankind. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we can see it Right now, within ourselves. Am I, am I a worshiper, a follower of Christ, or do I have some other agenda in my heart? Jesus makes it clear, this 
event is not insignificant. The, the, the anointing of my feet is not insignificant. Essentially, she has prepared me for my burial. She has anointed my feet in preparation for me residing in a tomb. So we've kicked off the Passion Week rightly as we recognize that the whole purpose of that week of Jesus' earthly life, of human history, of eternal history, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of those God was redeeming. Think about it. This is incredible. God orchestrating every event leading to this one event and so that the outworking of that lasts to this day and throughout all of eternity. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Has God redeemed you for Himself? Are you one of those that will sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus singing with the rest of the redeemed about how He's worthy to receive glory and honor and riches and power. For He has created all things, and for His glory they are and were created. Are you one of those? The, the ripple effects of what Christ did on this Passion Week. Here they are, and they'll continue forever. There's more to the story than certain events. This is amazing. That Saturday, and the very next day, we see the Lord Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And you'll remember the scene. We're not going to turn there. You've read it. You've heard it. We've preached on it. You've you've got the scene, right? Jesus is on the the donkey. It has clothes on it. He's riding in. People are throwing clothes and palm branches in the street. They're running around. There's there's a lot of of, uh, uproar. People are enthused, and some people are angry, right? We're familiar with this. And the crowds, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey, are saying this, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is entering in, and the people are praising Him rightly. Remember what the word Hosanna means? Oh, save us! Save us! Good answer. That's a a good cry. It's the cry that we need today. Recognizing who the Savior is, it's Christ. And the call of our hearts that that God has worked in us because no man calls Jesus the Christ except by the Spirit of God who dwells in us. Think about God working this out so we can cry out, save us! This is the scene. And yet there are some cranky people. Take a look. We're going to come back to, to John 12. So if you want to put something there, you can, or it's only a book away, so you don't have to. Look at Luke 19 for a moment. Luke 19, it's to your left, one book. The Pharisees are angry. He's tell, they're telling Jesus to rebuke the disciples and the, the crowds. And Jesus has something to say to them. In verse 38 of Luke 19, the scene again, Jesus is coming in. They're saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And He said, I tell you, if these were silent. What does the rest say? The very stones would cry out. Is there any significance to this event? Jesus lets us know. Hey, listen, I don't need the crowds to get this job done. This is a God-ordained moment. I'm coming in. I am 
telling you, I am the King. Whether you acknowledge it or not is not the issue. I am the King. If you don't want to acknowledge it, that's fine. God will work it out through something that is inanimate. The stones will cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Oh, would that you knew, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time, the time of your visitation. See, this is not just an ordinary event. God ordained this time for Jesus to come and declare himself for who he is. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. And some recognized it. Of course, their tune, some of them changed. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This is Sunday. Sunday. He weeps over the city because, they, because of their unbelief. He, he wept over the city because he recognized what the impact of unbelief would result in. He is not unimpacted by these things. As we move on to the next day, Monday comes, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he's headed toward the temple. And on his way into the city, he will encounter a fig tree that was not bearing figs. You might remember that. He wasn't very happy with that fig tree. He said, no figs today in the fig growing season? No figs for you anymore. I had a guy, uh, it was in Pensacola, Florida, went to Walmart. I think I was getting glasses or something. And this guy knew I was from, from a, a Bible school. And he wanted to really give me a zinger. And, and this was the passage he talked to me. He said, oh, if Jesus is God, how could he kill that poor innocent tree? Lord, help me to be gracious. <laughs> I can't tolerate this kind of ineptitude. Um, okay, so now we're talking about the one that laid down his life so that he might provide a sacrifice for the sin of the world. You're concerned about an, a tree. A tree is alive, right? Yes, it's, it's alive. Jesus made the tree. He can snuff out the life of this tree that has no soul if he wants to. And it's, it's, not, it's not a sin. He's the sovereign creator. He can make another tree just like it. And this one will bear figs. This is Jesus. He's coming in. But there's, there's something about that fig tree. It's not, it's not there for no reason. And, and this event is not for no reason. He, he continues on. Jesus enters into the temple. And you can see that he is a bit um, upset. What's happening in the temple when Jesus enters it? The people are buying and selling they're doing all kinds of things that are outside of the worship system. It was designed to, to bring something uh, important, something that is of your own flock, something that was sacrificial, something that rec we recognize when we bring this, this lamb or this pigeon or these turtle doves, whatever it is, we bring it, it, it co it's costing something and its life will be snuffed out instead of mine. It's a, it's a substitute for my sin. 
because it was, God was using that sacrificial system for a reason, to point us to the fact that God is willing to substitute the death of one for the salvation of another. Jesus was the one that that was supposed to be about. And they are ruining the imagery. They're destroying the imagery. Jesus is rightly upset. You've got this thing all upside down and backwards. And so he throws the money changers out. He throws the chairs out, the tables over. It's, it's, it's quite a scene. Head to, to Luke 9. We're in Luke 19. After this scene, we have this statement from Luke in verses 45 and following. Well, we have the account and then some other information. He says, and he entered the temple in verse 45 and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily. Daily he was teaching in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. Listen carefully. For all the people were hanging on his words. They were hanging on his words. Tell me more. They're not thinking, I wonder what's for lunch. Or I've got to get back home. The laundry's ready. There's a football game on. They're hanging on the words of Jesus because they recognize in some way that he has the words of life. They're recognizing this is different. The scribes, they, 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 they do a lot of talking and I get nothing. And this man speaks as one who has authority. I've got to hear this. See, God is laying out for us who Jesus is. And the people, some of them are recognizing it. They don't have it in full bloom. Back to John chapter 12, please. Here on this Monday, not only is Jesus uh, cursing the fig tree and entering into the temple and throwing out the money changers and, and He's teaching constantly and people are listening, we also recognize on this, this Monday there was this special sign from heaven. A voice from heaven. Chapter 12 of John, verses 27 and following. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. Again, the crowd that stood there and heard it uh, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. I didn't need the audible, but you did. But I want for us to notice, in in the midst of this event of God authenticating the ministry and person of Jesus Christ, what Jesus says in verse 27. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. God God had appointed a time for Jesus to do these things that we're seeing. This is not happenstance. This is not willy-nilly. This is design. God designed this hour. Then we hear a hint from the Lord Jesus in the next couple of verses about the crucifixion, beginning in verse 30. We read uh, verse 31, excuse me. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the uh, ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So he's laying little hints here at his crucifixion. So we, we come through Monday. And then Tuesday arrives in the pages of Scripture. We see him on Tuesday. Um, this is one of the busiest days in recorded scriptural history. This Tuesday that we will look very briefly out at is such a busy day and an important day in Christ's ministry that it requires 405 Bible verses. Now, some of them are, are intertwined, right? Some of them are from different Gospels, so they're synoptics. But 405 verses on Tuesday of Jesus' Passion Week. Just by way of comparison, there are 354 verses in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. It's a lot of, that's a lot of information on Tuesday of Jesus' Passion Week. As Jesus walks back into Jerusalem, he will pass by the fig tree that just yesterday in the week he had cursed. Jesus will compare his power over the fig tree with the power the disciples will have to accomplish his will. So there was an imagery here. There's something involved here with this fig tree. Some of it has to do with people missing the boat, And some of it has to do with a demonstration of power. And so we see some significance there. Then one after another, as Jesus heads into the temple area again, one after another, the chief priests and the elders send questioners to Jesus. You can see that in Mark 11. And then uh, following that, the Pharisees and the Herodians come and they're questioning Jesus. That's in Mark 12. Then following that, the Sadducees come and ask him questions. And then finally, the, the Pharisaical scribe comes in Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 12. And every question that Jesus answers, I would recommend reading them this week. Every question that Jesus answers, the questioner has to leave with their tail between their legs. Not because he necessarily was trying to bash them into the ground. When someone speaks the truth and it's indisputable, what is there to say? I don't know what to say to that. (laughs) Wish that didn't happen. (laughs) What are they going to do? Jesus follows that set of questions up against him with a question of his own. And (laughs) they also had nothing to say. Um, they, They didn't have a response to him. So Jesus answers their questions and then asks them a question that they can't answer. Then, following this uh, string of questionings, Jesus readdresses their questions by speaking forth parables. And those parables created a great deal of frustration and wrath from the religious leaders. Having spoken the parable of the two sons, of the wicked husbandmen and of the marriage feast. He asks them one last question that produces silence. Take a look there with me at Matthew 22. Matthew 22. The 
the last verses from, from verse 41 and on, he said, the Bible says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, uh, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is, is he his son? Hmm. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He has silenced them. He silences his critics, and then you come into chapter 23 of Matthew, and he rebukes them. You remember the woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. This is what Jesus is doing on Tuesday. Look at chapter 26 of Matthew. After he silences them and then gives them a tutorial on what their wickedness deserves. He says in chapter 26, we have a very clear declaration of what is going to happen to Jesus. This is not a veiled commentary. This is a direct statement in verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, And, will you read this with me? The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Did you read it? Did you hear it? Did you understand it? Jesus said it. The people heard it. And His disciples didn't get it. It's clear, right, that they didn't get it? But Jesus was as clear as could be. In two days, the Passover, and then I'll be crucified. I'll be given up to be crucified. He is absolutely direct and clear. It is on this same day the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 speaks about the coming judgment and the coming kingdom. And then we come to Wednesday. Now Wednesday, it's tough to figure out exactly what took place on Wednesday. I think likely what we're about to read from Luke 22, if you'll head there, Luke 22, I think this took place on Wednesday. There's no guarantee of this. Wednesday is is considered the day of silence. It is... uh, the halfway point of Passion Week, and it is likely the day that the Sanhedrin plotted to arrest and kill Jesus. Luke 22, beginning in verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Him, Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then... Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So they make their plan. I think on Wednesday, Satan enters Judas. Judas and Satan agree to betray Jesus. As the week is unfolding, I think Satan's pretty happy. It's, it's kind of working out. He's got this undercurrent going on, and now he has his key man in place to get rid of the Messiah. What do you think God's perspective on all of this is? Yes, this is exactly what my plan was. It's very interesting how God uses the evil devices of man and Satan 
and incorporates it into what he's going to do. He's going to do it. Whatever God wills to do, he will do. That is, that, that's what makes him God. And so Satan's working really hard. And God is accomplishing his will. It's the way it is. Satan's working hard today. And the world is working hard to askew, to, to eschew, to, 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 to sneak away from, to squash the influence of Christ and Christianity and the Scriptures. Do you still know God? Do you still know Jesus? Do you still read the Bible? Do you still know what the Bible says? you know that it's true? How, how is Satan working out in this, this whole deal? He can do nothing, nothing against the truth. He can do nothing against the will of God. Nothing. Satan's at work. But be of good cheer, Jesus said. I have overcome the world. All of these events have a purpose. It's not haphazard. It's sovereign. We come to Thursday. Thursday is another busy day in Jesus' ministry. Jesus and his disciples will be headed to the upper room toward the end of the day on Thursday. Uh, Friday, if you're using the Jewish terminology. Uh, We do not have the time to run through all of the events, but rather just to to look at an overview. So I'm just going to list a bunch of things. Do with it what you will. Uh, We just want to get a a sense of what's going on on Thursday of Passion Week. Um, He sends two of his disciples into the city to prepare for the Passover. You can see that in Matthew 26. At sunset, again, that would be Friday for the Jews, but we call it Thursday. He celebrates with us. Uh, with the, his disciples, the Passover. You can see that in Matthew 26, 20. There will be a discussion about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Of course, you have to throw that into the mix. Uh, there will be un, uh, unbelievable display of humility by the Lord Jesus. You remember this? Where he girds himself and, and takes the basin and washes the stinky, smelly, nasty feet of his disciples. Demonstrating that he who is greatest in the kingdom is also the one who recognizes he's least in the kingdom. And the greatest one, scrubbing the feet of the disciples. It's, uh, it's, a, it's really breathtaking. Jesus in that setting in Matthew, th- uh, excuse me, John chapter 13 will indicate that he knows who's going to betray him. Uh, Judas. He's going to predict Peter's denial. You see that in Luke 22. It's on the screen for you. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. What a humbling experience that was for one of those who was the greatest of the disciples and then apostles. Then the Lord Jesus will institute the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26. You don't have time to read that passage at this point. After that, He'll teach a beautiful discourse in John 14, 15, and 16, much of which has to do with another comforter, the Holy Spirit coming in and, and... guiding and comforting and strengthening and bringing to remembrance the things Jesus taught so it could be recorded and passed on. 
Then in John 17, he's going to pray for his disciples and for all those of coming generations who are his followers. John 17 is incredible. And then he heads to the Garden of Gethsemane. Take a look there at Matthew 26 for just a moment. Beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. You can catch up when you get there. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37. And talking with him, Peter said, uh, excuse me, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. See, we're seeing who Jesus is. It's so easy to just think, oh yeah, but Jesus. He's God-man. This, this, he knew from all of eternity he was going to do this. He can do this, no problem. He's God. Read this. Read this. Understand the struggle of Jesus, the God-man. God, there's another way, if it's possible. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You see the struggle? The reason we're not going to read Hebrews 10 in our service, we read it as a response of reading. There's a reason for that response of reading this morning. A body, a body you have prepared for me. Flesh and bone. Blood coursing through the body. I have come to do your will. That didn't mean that the will was easy. The will of, of, of God for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was intense and, and sorrowful and painful and turmoil. Terrible. The wrath of God was about to be poured out on the spotless, perfect Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's struggling. He, he has to be. He is. He, look, read it. Verse 43, again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and saw them, or said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This this was all by design. Jesus, the God-man, suffering, struggling, and the hour is upon us. It's upon Him. Thursday becomes Friday. Jesus is exhausted Jesus is mentally worn, and Jesus is 
He knows the spiritual conflict that's about to take place. Jesus is God, so he knows what sin is. Jesus did no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He was about to become sin. That in and of itself produces anguish for him. That in and of itself is an eternal change, something that that he never in eternity ever experienced. Now it's on him. And then the wrath of God. The wrath of God. The holy, righteous, just, and full wrath of God poured out. This is why, folks, among the reasons at least, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you turned on me? Judas then appears with the guards. Take a look there at John 18. The guards come. Judas comes. Again, you can catch up to me in verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that, had, that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup? Shall I not experience fully what God has designed for me? This is the hour. This is the moment. All of history, all of history was pointing to this. And so they take Jesus off bound. It was designed, folks. If we aren't careful... We look at all these types of events and miss out on the fact that it was orchestrated by God. All of history, all of Scripture, all of eternity was pointing to this moment. Peter spoke of it in Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible, not possible for him to be held by it. Peter spoke of it in 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Paul makes this statement in 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Everything is fulfilled in Him. Everything was leading to this point. This is no accident. This is no mob that takes control of the, the, the one that gave them life. You kidding me? He said, let there be light, and there was light. Someone's going to take him down? Of course not. Jesus laid down his life as an offering for sin. Jesus said it in John 10. For this reason, the the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus willingly navigated history to this moment that we're reading about. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, He, Jesus Himself, bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. He's not speaking about physical healing. He's talking about the wounded broken, sinful, rebellious, condemned soul of man. And Jesus bore my sin in His own body on the tree. All of history was pointing to this. Don't read your Bible to get nitty-gritty. Do's and don'ts. Yeses and no's. Read your Bible to see a redeeming God. God loved me enough to substitute His Son to redeem me. This is what the Scriptures tell us. Have you received forgiveness of your sin? When you face God, will you be condemned because of your sin? Or warmly welcomed with a glorious entrance into His kingdom? This is why Jesus laid down his life, so that you could be gladly welcomed. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Come unto me, all you who are are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You have to come. You You have to believe. You have to cry out. You have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. God tells us, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. All of history was pointing to that that place when Jesus gave His life. We read it. Don't miss it. Don't miss the struggle. Don't miss the sacrifice. Don't miss the orchestration by God so that I might enter in. I love singing that song. Oh, how sweet and awful is the place. Talks about preparing the feast, and if he didn't bring me in, I'd still be on the outside looking in. 
but he's laid it all out and he's brought me in and he's given me life and I can feast. I can feast because of Christ. I don't know about you. I can't answer for you. I I know that God has redeemed me. That I know. I, I can't speak for anyone else. I know God has redeemed me. His Spirit dwells within me. And it bears witness. He, the Spirit bears witness with my soul that I am a child of God. I am a son of God. In fact, when I cry out to my Father, it is very easy for me to recognize the personal relationship of a God who loves me because I see what Jesus did for me. You've got to answer that question for yourself. Don't leave today without a personal relationship with God. Don't leave today without having been redeemed. The Gospel goes out. The Gospel is proclaimed. This is, this is the benefit we have. We've received it, and we proclaim it. And we say, Lord, you, you've got to do the rest. I can't make you believe. I'm thankful God, God enabled me to believe. I can't, I can't make that happen either. So we say, Lord, help me. It was a great, great prayer in the Scriptures. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Maybe you ought to pray that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for all You've done. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Spirit. Thank You for Your Son. Thank You for Your kindness. Father, where work needs to be done, where, where we need to surrender ourselves to You, where, where we are seeing the trees rather than the forest, seeing events rather than the significance of the events, when we see factoids Rather than our Savior, help us, help us to re-engage and adore only Him. I pray for anyone here that's never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray even this hour, even in these next few minutes, through Your Spirit, based upon Your Word, that You would draw them to Yourself. We commit this to You. We know You are the God of salvation. In Jesus' name, Amen.